no more defenses. Our army is wiped out. Artillery, air force, everything wiped out. This may be the last broadcast. We'll stay here to the end. Welcome to Media and the End of the World. We're back once again after a one-week break to allow Ralph to give him his weekly annual vacation. How did vacation go, Ralph? <laughs> oh, it was uh, completely uh, an astounding experience. I spent a week in Philadelphia. Now, doesn't that sound sexy? Oh, yeah, yeah. That's, uh... it, was, it, was, uh, it was quite exciting. It was interesting. I was... Um, I have to tell, let me. I, I have to drop into a little footnote story here, just because it's funny. I, I which would has nothing to do with Philadelphia, nothing, of course. Yes, because we have to open with a surprise. <laughs> this is so. So the trick is for those of you who are listening to this is that uh, at, we we do some preparation for this and we line up our thing and then everything and then as soon as the recording starts, some little. <laughs> You know, squirrel in my brain says, "Talk about this." <laughs> so, so, um, so the the names of places was what came up. I was uh, actually reading about you know the singer Robert Palmer. Mm-hmm. Um, so Robert, he actually died quite a few years ago. It's sad, but it, because I keep on hearing things that he recorded that are fantastic experimental pop songs that he was doing, and so I was reading a little bit about him biographically, and he lived in UK, then Switzerland, and then Nassau in the Bahamas. So I'm sitting at the dining table with my family, and I'm saying, yeah, I was reading about Robert Palmer, the singer, and he was living in Nassau, but then he left because the crime rate went nuts, and so he wasn't there anymore. Too many shootings, too much drug dealing, and it became the most dangerous place, so he left Nassau. My daughter goes, he was living at Nassau? (laughs) And and I realized that the difference between Nassau and Nassau is something that's lost on American speakers like myself, so that was kind uh, of funny. So did you hit up the mainstays? Were you a Independence Hall kind of person or were you checking out other museums? Well, I had I had a I had a friend who I've I've known since undergrad uh, who works in media production who's been living in Philadelphia for 30 years and he did one tour of and he did basically a tour of where he used to work and live and the neighborhoods yeah. he was in and everything like that so it wasn't really so much about the patriotic thing despite my sort of like you know 1776 musical influenced <laughs> desire to see that but it was but it was that and then the, um, the 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 other people I was visiting one teaches at Temple so we toured Temple um, but it was mostly just you know checking out the city because I really never spent very much time yeah. there. Um, and so, of course, when you're going to go to a city like that, what do you do? You look up what are the top things you're supposed to do. So among them is going to the Central Market and eating a cheesesteak sandwich, which mm. I did. Good. And it was delicious. Yeah. It was, yeah, we had uh, cheese. Uh, I was The person I was traveling with, we had a cheesesteak and uh, poutine. Oh. We split those. Whew. So it was it was a health food trip. Yeah, did you, did you make it through the rest of the day? Yes. Well, we split both of those, so it was kind of like two half lunches, basically. But but so one of the high points was I friend I, I went with this friend of mine to a museum there, and it's called the Mutter Museum or the Mutter Museum because it is a U with an umlaut over it, mm. and the uh, Mutter Museum was uh, is is kind of an astounding place. And I should probably mention that if you're of a slight constitution, you might not want. I, I as I've tried to explain this to people, I can like watch them shift into shades of green because um, this was basically a uh, a museum that was founded by the um, 
uh, Pennsylvania College of Physicians, uh, quite some time ago. So it's been around for a very long time. It's been around since 1858. And it started with uh, some pretty interesting collections of stuff. Hmm. So when you so uh, so it's a, oh, and their slogan, by the way, is disturbingly informative. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, the Mutter Museum. So the first thing you see when you walk in is what they call the soap lady. And what it is, is it's a it's a corpse. And if a if a human body is not exposed to the normal anaerobic process, well, should we give like a yeah, that's what a, I was saying. A warning. Yeah, this yeah, is, this yeah. Is, I'm going to try to keep this pretty. But <laughs> um, but yeah, basically what happens if it's not like sort of in a in an environment where all the little critters get there, then your 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 body turns into this kind of waxy, soapy substance, which is kind of interesting. So they have that. Uh, I won't go into much more detail. I would say go to the the Mutter Museum website so you can see about all this because it's it's really interesting stuff. Then they have a wall of fifty skulls. Okay. From all over the world, all ages and causes of death and things wow. like that. And it's really kind of I mean seeing a wall of skulls, you know. And and what's what's what they did so at the I, just a little footnote, at the beginning of the museum, they have a little explanation card that says, since this has been around since the mid-19th century, some of the language used to describe the specimens and other things that are in here were considered uh, okay at the time, but probably now would cause problems. So like, you know, referring to um, somebody from a non-civilized area as a savage, for example, um, now is a much more pejorative term because we have much more of a political consciousness about that sort of thing. But they wanted to try to use the language intact as it was. So, um, so for example, a term like Siamese twins, which mm. is, you know, kind right. of racist and annoying all at the same time, because they have a, uh, actually a mold of uh, Chang and Eng, who were conjoined at the midsection uh, in the museum. Um, anyway, so it was the the museum. Uh, so the, so it all looks kind of like a 19th century. It's wooden cases with glass. The glass is older, so it's got ripples in it. So it's got this kind of really interesting in the main section, this old fashioned feeling to it. They had a side exhibit on um, the Civil War, and particularly African American soldiers in the Civil War and injuries in medicine then, which was really interesting. And then they had a thing about um, sort of the conception of monstrous births. So uh, previous to understanding how exposure to chemicals and things like that can affect the development of a child. You know, if a child was born who was deformed somehow, it was considered to be a curse or some sort of like omen or something like that. So they had a display that kind of went through the history of that. It's not a museum for the faint of heart. Yeah. Um, hard pass. It is. Hard pass. <laughs> it is a lot of glass jars. Yeah. And a lot of things in glass jars. But it's but it's <laughs> a fascinating uh, a place if if that's your kind of thing. And it's, it is very disturbingly informative. Yeah. I am. Um, <laughs> Because like murder podcasts are, are a really big hot thing, like, I I feel like I get I I would want to get into them for the quality of the content, but um, I've been listening to this podcast which I'll give a shout out called Cocaine and Rhinestones, which is a history of country music um, uh, throughout the 20th century. It's mm-hmm. phenomenal. It's a really good, really good podcast. But you, you know, even there's there's one episode in it that it goes into a murder and then the guy have to fast forward like through you know like, yeah. like, like through the 10 minutes they're talking about it because I just I can't I can't I can't handle it even as a kid going through like Ripley's Believe It or Not you mm-hmm. know which is geared more towards kids being able to see these oddities um, you know I get a little queasy I have been reading a little bit I'm, so I'm prepping for a course that I'm teaching in the fall um, and I 
have been reading a little bit about P.T. Barnum. Um, uh, of course, you know, The Greatest Showman's just out, right. and I'm trying to be relevant to the kids. So. <laughs> but uh, P.T. Barnum also has a, a really strong history as it relates to advertising, and it's an intro to advertising class. So uh-huh. I'm going I'm to be talking about it. But, you know, he obviously isn't the, the founder, but certainly is the one who, who really brought the idea of these oddity museums into yeah. a, a place as public as, as downtown New York. Um, so when did you when did you first learn about P.T. Barnum and his whole approach to entertainment? Um, oh, it's hard to say. I mean, I think obviously my my first interaction with anything Barnum was the Barnum Bailey Circus. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't I mean it, it must have been sometime in college early doing early studies with advertising mm-hmm. um, because he's, he's a, he's a go-to figure for thinking about things um, as it relates to, particularly as it relates to copywriting, like the idea of uh, once in a lifetime or um, even, even the idea of um, uh, final tours, you know, last chance to see whatever right. act. I mean, he's, he's sort of the person who invented that and his whole, his, his whole way in which he would, he would bring in the train into a city weeks before us, the circus would come and really, really hype it up and just plaster the city with posters and, and, uh, you know, really, uh, hound the press to get, you know, to, to get, to build a hype for his, his circuses is, is really foundational for thinking about the early concepts for, um, essentially building hype or, mm-hmm. um, or, or building, uh, you know, building excitement for a, yeah, that's a, what an event from... or pseudo event right. is probably what you would call what he did. You know, I mean, circuses are probably more events, but the idea of the, of the, the oddity museum, you know, is mm-hmm. um, it just it, it's fascinating some of the some of the things that, you know a lot of them are, which are tragic and how he would he would treat real humans, but also just like the 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 way in which people enjoyed you know like like one of the ideas was. Um, a horse in which, you know, the front and back of the horse have been switched and the tail's where the head is and the head's where the horse is. And then you walk in and and then you just see a horse, you know, tied up in a stall, you know. And people like kind of like the the term for that was was humbugging, you know, or humbug. And, and people enjoyed this or um, he... Uh, um, I mean, a lot, a lot of these are just silly things, but you know, he 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 marketed a rhinoceros as a unicorn. Mm-hmm. Um, he had this this sign that said "This way to the E get E G E T T," and um, and uh, so you'd walk through this, you know, thinking you were seeing some kind of you know water bird or something like that, mm-hmm. and it was it was it was the exit. Yeah, <laughs> and you have to pay to get back in, and people just like, kind of enjoyed this. I mean, like, they kind of enjoyed being tricked a little bit. Uh-huh. Um, but of course, there's there's lots of uh, lots of issues of how he you know treated humans. He you know he marketed, although she was sort of in on it as well. Um, someone as George Washington's uh, like slave, you know, who was mm-hmm. supposedly like 161 years old, and and uh, and she would tell stories of of you know singing a little Georgie. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, then she she passed, and they. He had an autopsy done, and it turned out she's only like eighty-one, you know, and <laughs> had nothing to do with it. Yeah. You know, some crazy, some crazy stories, but it has a lot to do with sort of. Yeah. Sort of we, I mean, it was interesting. Your discussion earlier about uh, last chance is yeah. what, what we kind of, from a critical perspective, call artificial scarcity. Yeah, right. Where you say this, this may be the last pizza, right? Or this may be hurry now. Media at the end of the world. This yeah. may be the last yeah. 
Best podcast yeah. or something like that. And um, it's funny when you mentioned that all I read was all, all I read off of that is Disney because that was, you know, over yeah. the decades, that was Disney's the stock vault. and trade, yeah. the vault. And yeah, this last time available before it disappears back into the vault. And, you know, so it's like this marketing scheme. I was saying, I've been thinking the same thing as I've been reading these stories. It's like, I feel like something like Disney World doesn't exist without a Barnum, you know, who, who created these types of escapism places that people sort of enjoy, mm-hmm. you know, to, to, to play in because he, he really, he, he really made that an, an, an international idea. One thing that was interesting, I did not know about Barnum until I started preparing a little bit more was he actually rarely traveled with the circus and he was very, uh, Trumpian in like, I mean, all the advertisements had Barnum's picture, right? Like he was, I mean, everything was a Barnum this, Barnum that, in the same way Trump, Trump Tower and yeah. Trump Hotels. And, or, or Bloomberg, where everything connected with Bloomberg has a name yeah, Bloomberg. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, but he never actually traveled with the circuit. I mean, he did, but very rarely. He actually thought that the coach that would come into town was very gaudy. You know, he thought it was way over the top. I and mean, what he he preferred to do was sort of, you know, sit at his, at his home and, and write ad copy. That was, you know... <laughs> What, what he wanted to do. That's, so. that's, that's actually kind of awesome that, that he would. Uh, yeah, I think it's one of those things that we've been, of course, rethinking over the last couple of decades in terms of the treatment of animals, which was a big part of the whole circus experience, too, which, you know, they're um, essentially elephants as, ele- as parts of circuses are going away. Circuses yeah. themselves are, you know, of course, going away, too. Ripley's kind of an interesting sidebar because the newspaper article was, was how he essentially let it be known, you know, some of the things, and then the museum followed much later. But it was that idea of oddities. Um, There's a couple of other writers like Charles Fort, who I don't know if you're familiar with him, Mm -hmm. but he was a writer, mostly writing in the teens and 20s um, about... You know, collecting oddities like you know rains of fish and you know ice and disappearances of animals and things like that, all of which were you know kind of almost felt supernatural. Like there were you know, like cryptozoology, you know, would, would sort of be an offshoot. Um, one of the and and going back to the Barnum thing, you know, of course, as you're talking about, I'm thinking of the Fiji mermaid. Yes, the oh the yeah, the Fiji mermaid. It's yes. kind of like the epic of the humbug. Right. Yeah. So it was a. A head of a monkey that was sewed to the bottom of a fish yeah. <laughs> that he marketed as his feet. I mean, it's, it's uh-huh. yeah, to- totally. Not I think a- I've seen that at Trader Joe's. Like <laughs> frozen, frozen Fiji mermaid, um, ready for the dinner table. One of the crazier like animal stories was that he had an elephant, and the elephant actually died. He got hit by a train, um, oddly enough, and he had the. This the skin separated from the skeleton, um, but then he would use both the skin and the skeleton, and he and he put it on like a you know a wooden um, platform that would roll, and he would roll it through the city, the skin, <laughs> the skeleton, and then they had trained a female elephant, I believe its name was Annie, to follow along as if it was like the widow of this elephant, <laughs> and they trained it to hold a black like handkerchief and sort of like lift her with her trunk, lift her trunk and wipe her eyes like every few steps. <laughs> it's like so bizarre. That's really amazing. <laughs> I love the I because I, you know of course that's the anthropomorphization of animals, making them you know act as if humans would act under that circumstance, which is kind yeah. of a funny thing. Um, so one thing I, I wanted to talk about was that so I've been uh, thinking more about uh, the idea of this term called uh, one bagging or one bag, which is traveling with. Um, 
uh, essentially everything that you need within a backpack, even for like longer trips. And mm-hmm. so like this is whatever reason this has been on my mind of, of eliminating a bunch of clothes, you know, my closet and, and thinking about, a, a you know, sort of a, a very small wardrobe, which is a big deal for me. I've got a, you know, way, way too many shirts and I just uh, buy, buy too much as it so is. So you're becoming a minimalist. I don't, I don't want to say that because that <laughs> documentary on Netflix kind of makes me angry. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> like the, it's a, you know, it's, it, it, it's such a millennial stereotype, but right. this is, this is sort of what I went into. But one of the things, um, that I, I'm thinking about is, you know, what you, uh, what I carry is like electronics and what I've been looking at is, I mean, literally looking at the, you know, the pounds of a bag and the pound, you know, the weight of a laptop versus the weight of the iPad versus the weight of a Kindle, um, and thinking about how I want to carry, um, you know, digital materials with me. And as we were preparing for this, you were talking, uh, a little bit about, um, sort of looking at uh, DRM or digital rights management, mm-hmm. um, specifically as it relates to, to Amazon. So you would, you would piqued my interest because I'm, I'm thinking more about, you know, what, 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 what do I need to buy into as a, as a mm-hmm. tablet platform? Essentially? Yeah, well, it brings two things to mind on the previous point. One is the, the Alton Brown rule, which is you should never buy anything that only has one use. Yeah. Right. So that's your kitchen should never have anything can only be used once. But also as recent for some insane reason, watching uh, a trailer for the film Our Man Flint. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Uh-uh. Well, it's a 1960s kind of send up of a send up because it's an American parody of James Bond films, basically. And James Coburn plays the the Flint, the character, and uh, he's meeting with his tool guy. And the tool guy opens up the suitcase and says, there's 93 ways to kill people in the suitcase. And he pulls out of his pocket this cigar lighter and he says, this does 106 things. And then he flicks it and says, 107 if you use it to light a cigar. <laughs> so, yeah, so the multi-use thing is very good. But it, but it's interesting that, that that minimalist, well, I won't say minimalist, I guess, because we don't want a minimalennialist. <laughs> yeah, oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's, I think that's technically a portmanteau word now, minimalennialist. Oh, you, you found my trigger words. Yeah. <clears throat> okay, I'll never never mention it again, minimalennialist. Yeah, there we go. Um, yeah, so so digital rights management, something that, that we can talk about a little bit here um, – um, which I think that there are some practical questions about, and then some applicate. What, what's your? Does this is this become a thing in your life at all? Digital rights management and uh, yes. Um, so uh, you know this this was a big deal for me um, with, with early on thinking about digital music. So and this was a, I think a big controversy with Steve Jobs at one point. I don't I don't really remember the the story, but um, you know sort of the early digital music sort of being uh, propelled by. P2P networks, peer-to-peer networks, and sort of you owned the MP3 and you had it, and then iTunes started to take over, and then iTunes started to to sort of sell songs at like multi-tiered prices, like one price for the song and one pr- price for like a DRM-free song, and there was this big revolt, and I believe being Steve Jobs ended up backing away. I don't know. This is like a uh, probably a twelve-year-old story, so I'm, I, I don't have the details quickly uh, correct but this was something that you know i originally thought about um well let's let's just pause for a moment and and do a little bit of explaining for people who don't so drm stands for digital rights management and what does it actually do um so it actually means that you don't the digital uh and tell me if i'm wrong tell me if i'm thinking about this the digital file in which you have access to you don't technically own but you're essentially renting from the, the the company of it so if you buy a Kindle book from Amazon, 
Um, you are essentially paying for a uh, a rental of it, of which never goes away unless Kendall wants to pull it. So you know, if if for whatever reason, um, J.K. Rowling decides that she no longer wants Harry Potter books on the Amazon store, right? That she no longer wants anyone to have them. Kindle can essentially shut those down. Right. Yeah. Um, unless you've got sort of the source file of, you know, the EPUB that that runs on the Kindle right. or whatever it so is. So that's part of it too, is that it ties the usage of that file to a particular software platform by extension right. a company. Right. So so that your ability to use it is limited to um your your ability to use that particular software. Um I actually have a foot of frustration about this in a moment that we'll most, get to. Most people don't know this, right? Mm-hmm. And they think that if I'm buying a digital book, I'm just I'm doing the same thing as buying a physical book, but I'm buying it within you know a, a different medium. And while that's true, you know it's 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 probably closer to to, to renting than it is actually right, owning. Right. And owning used to I mean owning has kind of a because I've I've always been a secondary market person. I.e., I spent a lot of time in thrift stores. Yeah. <laughs> or a garage sales or stuff like that. And the idea was that it was, you know, once you bought something, it was yours to do with as you saw fit. So if you wanted to take a book or a CD or something and sell it to somebody right. else and they could sell it to somebody else, that was all considered legal because you owned it, right? Right. Um, That's that, true. You, you also can't resell, essentially. Right, yeah. And yeah. so there's so a lot of this has to do with, you know, trying to monetize this material. And I'm always a big fan of whatever can be done to support artists and creation and things like that. That. But not so much just to turn it all into. Uh, uh, it, for me, it's the principle of there are certain. There's a bunch of albums I will never buy again. I don't care how the technology <laughs> changes. I've already bought them two or three times, yeah. and I'm done. You know, I am just done um, because I feel like I've done my part to support the creative artists who were responsible for that. Well, part of the reason that that uh, this came up, and I was mentioning it to you earlier, Adam, is because there's a little bit of a, a, a sticky situation going on uh, between Audible and Google books. Oh, okay. Um, Because Google, and this is, Cory Doctorow was writing about this uh, in Boing Boing um, just last week, actually, about the fact that Google is going to be launching a digital rights management free bookstore, basically. And what they're who they're competing with is Audible. Audible's got about from the estimates I've seen, about ninety percent of the of the of the book on tape market. Mm-hmm. Book on tape. Remember audiobook. tape? Yeah, audiobook, book on tape, <laughs> cassettes. Oh, that was fabulous, right? Or if you want if it was a really massive novel, you had like twenty cassettes right. with it and everything. So but the um, cool little books that they would come in that you yeah. know they that they your, your cassettes would fit in. Right. And it would cool. and you could actually put it on the bookshelf and it looked like a book. Right. So, but um, but I mean, there's this interesting concept now. Audible controls so much of the market, and did it with digital rights management locking their stuff down. That um, Google is finding this way of competing with them by opening up the rights management, and so it's it's going to be an interesting competition to see you know how that works out. Uh, if Google's actually to, able to make a, a decent claim um, to try to contest Audible in the way that it's trying to control the information that it is. Yeah, and it's interesting. I mean, talking to authors as well, I I feel like the 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 book industry it's it's been disrupted in a similar way of the music industry, but for different reasons. Um, not necessarily the jump from physical to digital as much. 
I don't, I don't believe. I think it's just more of an audience preference change away from the medium of books to mediums of other kinds like smartphones, you know, or, mm-hmm. um, or television or whatever it is. Um, but I feel like the way of which DRM came, became set up for books and audio books was almost like a response. I mean, they locked it down so much more tightly after seeing sort of what, you know, piracy did for, for, for music and television right, as right. well. So. Yeah. And that's one of those things I was recently, uh, actually watching, there's about a 27 minute documentary about the band Yazoo. I don't know if you remember that. <laughs> they were, <laughs> uh, it was somebody who had departed from Depeche Mode and Alison Moyet, who's this magnificent singer. And they were just, I mean, they were huge for two albums and then they went away and talking about them in this documentary they're talking about it you know they're they they had basically two number one albums and then they split apart and actually when they were recording the second album the way the documentary talks about it they were never in the same room anyway so they were learning but it was very like dance driven electronic uh pop stuff um they've they've done or have talked about anyway doing some touring since then i've never seen them always wanted to but it was interesting because there was somebody talking about how you know this was having a number one record then was massive Right. And talking about that in the current context is a weird thing right. because the revenue streams that come from actually moving stuff like that. No, you know, compared to yeah, live. Their, their yeah. panic when they're when the first single off the second album came out was can they get enough actual physical copies of something into stores to meet the demand? Right. Which is not a thing anymore. Mm -hmm. Right. It's just it's just a completely different way of thinking about what this material is, how people use it, how they come across it and all that sort of thing. But um, but I think it's always important to be you know conscious and aware of how the industries are either encouraging or discouraging access or creating artificial scarcity through, you know, kind of locking things up or if they're, you know, basically obliging you to buy other kind of software and, and, and machines. Right. Like a Kindle or something like that to consume their stuff. Stuff. So, um, so it'll be interesting to see how this uh, works out. Um, you know, you were mentioning about authors. Uh, Corey Doctorow writes in in his piece on it. I saw the writing on the wall more than a decade ago. I've given up hundreds of thousands of dollars in lost income by refusing to allow my audiobooks to be sold with DRM. I even created my own audiobook store so I'd have somewhere to sell my books. Every time I've dealt with someone from Amazon, I've asked them to look into the long-promised DRM-free store for me, and every time they promised they would, but no one has ever gotten back to me. <laughs> so it'll be interesting to see whether, you know, and of course, you know, people uh, who are, Dominant players in the industry can have an effect like that uh, if they're, you know, I, I doubt Cory Doctorow is big enough to change Audible, but perhaps Google is. <laughs> it's very likely. Introducing yeah. the alternative way of approaching it. I, I feel like uh, Google's MO is it, it finds a particular industry in which is fully controlled by one company and says, we want to take a piece of that you know yeah. and so they you know audible just looks ripe to 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 someone to come in and take a little bit more of that yeah. market as well i think i may big that just to see if i can <laughs> I, was, I love the fact that bing is so aggressive about being on television i remember we were watching an episode of the vampire diaries and one character turns the other and says how did you learn that and she goes i binged it and it was just like this we cracked up because it was such a hilarious obvious ploy for like trying to tie in this search engine that I'm sure, you know, they gave some cash to the Vampire Diaries people to make sure it got in the script and everything like That's that. That's right. So, um, but I, I haven't, in my personal life, found binging to be all that gratifying. Well, you're not a Internet Explorer I'm just, user. I'm not. I'm actually, I'm becoming a, a DuckDuckGo user more and more. 
Uh, have you used that much? Uh, no. It's 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 uh, the so the sales pitch for DuckDuckGo is that they don't keep track of anything, right? right? So you're you're essentially you're it's not, you're not accumulating a bunch of information that somebody's going to be using to sell you shoes, right? right. Um, and it, it is a little bit. It's it's been very hard to get used to because I'm so used to Google searches, right? And what kind of results right. they produce and everything like that. And it's again, it's not one of those amazing things where everybody uses it and ninety nine. Point nine percent of those people have no idea how it works, right. but it works. Yep. So they're completely good with that. Yeah, I have a, you know, as I tell my students, is just sort of under. You have to sell yourself to one platform at least to sort of exist on the internet, and mm-hmm. I've chosen to sell myself to Google, and that's it's, it's Google for you. Oh, yeah. 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 Now it's interesting in the educational world how, because we're bombarded all the time by, you know, and it's actually even more intense at the K-12 level right. with platforms and, you know, you should be using Flipgrid and you should be using right. um, this, you know, Castify to do uh you know, on uh, uh, different pieces of your class. And then, of course, the whole platform that's being used for educational software. And there's a lot of intensity involved in that, too. Yeah. But, so. it, but it is hitting us. I mean, it, the way that I look at it is our our students are coming into higher education, spending their entire student career learning the Google platform, right? Like, right. I mean, they're writing everything on Google Docs and, and Google Sheets, and, and that's the platform in which they're they're most accustomed to. Then we, we take them to this weird world where it seems like Google doesn't entirely work well on campus, so magically. Yeah, the um, that, that actually leads up to um, one other thing I wanted to talk about a little bit, which was the uh, ISTE speech that was done by uh, David Eagleman uh, last month at the end of June, um, because it has to do with uh, an idea called neuroplasticity. Do you think that you have neuroplasticity, Adam? Anymore? <laughs> Probably once upon a time. Well, part of the argument... I think it's all solidified at yeah, this point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, there's a lot of, I think, uh, people have a lot of beliefs about what happens at different stages of brain development. And it's all still... I mean, there's research and everything like that. But um, part, of the, part of the interesting thing is that people end up believing things that were thought at one point and may not be thought so much anymore. So um, I know in, in one of the... Um, first uh, experiments they did about multitasking, they would do brain scans to see how much of the brain, what was happening in the brain when people were doing multitasking. And they set up an experiment and then did brain scans. And what they found out was that when you were interacting with um, having to switch codes, like between numbers and letters and things like that, when you were doing what multitasking essentially is, that um, enormous parts of your brain are lit up and working. And um, so then the question becomes, is that a good thing or a bad thing? And the argument that's come out of it is, well, it's kind of a bad thing because if you have that much of your brain working on it, it's incredibly inefficient, mm. right? Um, and um, so multi – and, of course, this all led up to the argument that contradicts all of our experience. I don't know if you're – are you deluded into thinking you're a good multitasker? Oh, no, not at all. <laughs> it's terrible. I'm, I'm, yeah. I mean, if, I'm, if I'm doing something – um, good luck trying to have a conversation with me or I will have to like stop whatever it is, you know, um, I cannot, I cannot focus on two things at once. Yeah. I used to, I, I used to be a white noise addict to mm. get work done and I just absolutely can't do that anymore. Just mm. sitting in places that are noisy like that. But anyway, so the, so the idea of neuroplasticity is that as your activities change, 
and think, you know, how technology affects how you change your activities, then your brain adapts, right? You're, so you'll start you know, practicing differently. So if you do a lot of multitasking, your brain will reorganize itself to multitask. It may not be good at it, but it's what it'll do. So uh, David Eagleman, who's um, did, did a series on the brain on PBS, it's fantastic. I, I met him actually several years ago. He's a fascinating guy. I think if I had this life to live over again, I'd go into this area because I think it's just mm. fascinating stuff. Um, but what he was talking about uh, in this presentation in June was uh, his notion of cognitive flexibility, which he calls the ability to be creative and put ideas together in new and innovative ways. And, and it should be – we should probably preface this was for an educational crowd – Right. Primarily K twelve focused on technology. Focused on technology, right? So the question becomes, you know, when you're, you know, as as should always be. I mean, these things should always be treated with a certain level of skepticism, yeah. right? Technology is not going to solve your problem exclusively, right? It may appear to or make one thing easier, but it's going to make other things harder. <clears throat> so, um, so part of what he was talking about was the relationship between, and you know, this kind of adaptive brain stuff and then neuroplasticity. How is it changing your brain and how does it affect creativity? And and of course, as a neuroscientist, that's his area of study. And um, he observed, and this is something that we, you and I both deal with in, in working with students, that students come in with a vast amount of experience using technology, yeah. right? They're, they're kind of used to it. And then what do we do about that? One of the, uh, one of the schools that's, uh, systems that's not too far away from where we're sitting right now uh, is going to have a new rule in place next school year where students aren't allowed to bring cell phones to class. And it'll be interesting to see what the effect of that is, yeah. right? Because there's uh, it's this is a high school um, district, and and they're going to stop that from happening. Um, and there's you know people have very strong feelings about it one way or the other. I'm sure the students are going to have very strong feelings about it. They're going to make exceptions for medical reasons and things like that. Um, but so that's a very like you know forced intervention into what's going on. Um, but what Eagleman was interested in when he was talking about this neuroplasticity and creativity was an observation he made that I thought was really clever and something that I think is worth thinking about, which is um, thinking about how we learn to do things the easiest way possible, right? We find the path of least resistance between here and there, and then we do that over and over again, like Google, right? I mean, Google right. is a path of least resistance way of answering a question like, where's Tom Petty from? <laughs> you know, or something <laughs> like that, right? Um, and so you'll use it and maybe not understand how it works. And that's not necessarily the best way, on the other hand, to actually, you know, get the answer if, if you're thinking about um, sort of longer-term ways of doing it, right? Yeah. Or if what you're interested in is creativity. And so Eagleman says, um, to succeed in this creative economy, as he describes it, being innovative, flexible thinkers and the most important skill that students can learn, he said, yet creative thinking is hard to cultivate because something called the problem of the path of least resistance. So what Eagleman is suggesting is sometimes we need to find out the hard way to do it because that keeps us more potentially creative. And what he suggested in the presentation was five different ways that educators can help students overcome the, the, the tendency to go to the path of least resistance. And, and essentially, it's, it's not quite laziness. It's just it works. And if it works, right. then you keep doing it, right? So um, so the, the five things that he mentions are bend, break, blend, have students practice bending or changing existing objects or ideas to suit a different purpose, breaking them into smaller components and blending or remixing them, um, which is kind of the culture of the digital environment anyway, right? Yeah. We, we think about that too. Challenge students to go deeper, and this has this has to do with um, how you 
partially how you ask questions, right? So you can ask a yes-no question or a look it up on Google question, or you can ask a, so give me an example of. Yeah, which, which higher order thinking. Right, higher order yeah. thinking, yeah. Um, three, develop a culture of exploration, um, you know, which is partially based on the idea that everything is trial and error and failure is part of the learning process, you know, rather than punishing people and, and uh, coming up with that sort of high stakes thing. Building creative spaces, and that's something that we see in higher education is a really big deal right now, mm-hmm. right? Um, fabricating and, and trying to think about how you can use um, uh, creative spaces to uh, respond to problems. Um, and then, of course, maintain the arts in schools, right? So here we run into (laughs) the troubling wall of, you know, this is not uh, this isn't an add on. This is this is a fundamentally important part of what being an educated person is. So I I struggle with thinking about this concept a lot for and I'll I'll, I'll tell you why Um, I I few things that I dislike more than sort of. Um, the idea that students can get really good at schooling, like the same sort of rote as you're, as you're mentioning this, this same path that we take on students every semester with a midterm and a final and maybe a paper, you know, and, and students can get so good at that. And so they can, they can play this one game well, and they can do it over and over again, and then they can graduate and conceivably the only thing they can really do really well is, is take study for, you know, multiple choice tests and, and, and write three point Mm -hmm. paragraph or three point uh, essays. Um, but the thing that I've noticed is the more that you shift away from that game, um, usually that works well for your privileged students, you know, who can sort of move on the fly really quickly. Mm-hmm. But I've been in situations where I've, I've, I've shifted so far that my, the students that I've seen struggle the most are often the, the underserved students, you know, who, who maybe probably weren't even good at the, the best at the schooled part of the game in the right. first place. And so that's one of my biggest struggles is where do I sit in the spectrum of, um, you know, having a very, um, out of the box type class, you know, which doesn't really care about a letter grade system a lot or a hundred point scale or what, you know, what have you. And, and there's various ways in which you can sort of earn your letter grade to what that, you know, that means versus the other, you know, other end of the scale of, of trying to make it a type of system in which the students are used to. Mm-hmm. So that, you know, that's a, that is based off of of no you know no research that I've read really the only of you know my own my own experience of I I I try to find the balance of how can I make this look like a classroom space and feel and smell like it but also you know um, be full of vegetables yeah so. yeah that's uh, the the term that I've always heard is strategic learning right? yeah there are people who are really good at strategic learning yeah and it's an interesting way that the that the system has negotiated a relationship with people it's almost like you know bumping it it's kind of funny because I you know when you when you bump into people who do a lot of yes sir no sir yes ma'am no ma'am talk right which is a little too formal sure but 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 the people who use that have found some strategic way that that's important usually my my suspicion growing up on the southwest side of Chicago is it's to appease police officers, <laughs> right? Oh yes, sir. Of course, sir. You know that's sort of like uh, overly polite stuff. But but whatever. Who's the leave it to be very right. <laughs> yeah, the Eddie Haskell. Yeah, Eddie right, Haskell. Yeah, yeah, the, yeah Eddie Haskell is a perfect example of that sort of thing. But every, I mean, all of us. I have my own, you know, things that I'm very strategic about in terms of 
you know, getting through a situation, getting through a meeting, getting through a conversation with a student, getting an idea across to a student about how could they can improve their work um, or something like that. And the difference between the strategic approach from them being something that accomplishes the commodity they're looking for, which is a grade, versus what we want their commodity to be, which is to learn, right? Yep. To, to um, and this abstract idea that they can actually come away from the experience with uh, with the ability to be creative, right? Um, and that becomes a different different kind of game altogether, um, yeah. but a very important one, yeah. and I think something that that we need to be conscious of. Um, Anyway, so that's that was Eagleman's discussion about this, and I think the other point he doesn't make it in this, but um, something that I've talked about in class before is the idea that neuroplasticity is something that keeps going on. So, Adam, you'll be gratified to know <laughs> you are just as neurally plastic as ever. And you know, when a new challenge comes up, a new piece of software or hardware or a new technology, that you will adapt. <laughs> yes, good to know. Yeah. It's like learning, uh, you know, a, a different cultural pattern or something like that, or you know, finding your own kind of strategic weaknesses and, and trying to work around them so that you actually make things more difficult, so that you don't fall into the trap of the path of least yeah. resistance. And it's a, you know important <clears throat> something that I want to make sure people understand is sort of the this idea of like digital natives, you know, and uh, or digital immigrants, and you know, and all of these. This, this is it's total BS, you know. Like there's not such thing as a digital native, mm-hmm. you know. That we think that this idea that this younger people are going to be more, um, you know, gonna grasp technology more and the reality is is as as you mentioned our neuroplasticity plasticity yeah, right <laughs> it's all the same it's, so. it's it's like watching a cat run an ipad there you go. Which is which is just to me is just mind blowing because it's a thing, right? I mean, cat can figure out iPad, yeah. and then you have to go, okay, this is you know clearly a questionable learning technology, yeah. sort of just off the shelf, and we have to think about it more seriously. All right. Well, hopefully we can solve the uh, the education <laughs> crisis before uh, the world comes to yeah, an end. Yeah, at least at least by you know the next. Two or three episodes. We'll yes. take care of it. Yeah, I think I think that's something we're talking about because we are looking at the business end of uh, back to school episodes. Mm. Still a little ways away, and I know that brings tears to the eyes of some people who might be actually too young to listen to this podcast. Go back <laughs> and do something more fun. But um, but yeah, that 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 fateful moment is coming when the institution gets cranked up again. So. All right. Well, we will catch up soon. Thank you for joining us on another episode of Media and the End of the World.